I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. To Judges chapter 21. While you're finding your seat and flipping there in your Bible, we've come to the the end of a series, a series that went a little longer than I originally anticipated, but a series through the book of Judges, a series that we've entitled Broken Leaders in God's Unbroken Promise. And it has been... It's been a hard series. It's been an encouraging series, but it's forced us to reckon with the weight of sin and the weight of rebellion, but simultaneously considering the faithfulness of our God. So we come to the very end, and this morning we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 19 through 21. I'm not going to read all three chapters here in the introduction. It'd be a great sermon, but but I'm not going to do that. And we're going to We're going to look at just the last two verses of the book here. I just want to read those into your hearing before we dive into the the last three chapters. So I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Judges chapter 21, and I'm just going to read verse 24 and 25. The author records this at that time. Each of the Israelites returned from there to his own tribe and family. Each returned from there to his own inheritance. Verse 25, and in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did whatever seemed right to him. This morning, I want to preach from the idea of doing what seems right in your own eyes. Let's go before the Father, Heavenly God. We ask for grace and mercy as we approach your word and hear from you, God. This moment is too big for any one person. As we consider your words communicated to us, I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Doing doing what seems right in your own eyes. There are two proverbs that we would do well to pay attention to. As we consider this idea of doing what seems right in your in your own eyes, Proverbs twelve fifteen says a fool's way is right in his own eyes. But whoever listens to counsel is wise. Similarly, Proverbs fourteen twelve says there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way of death. These are two verses that Thomas Andrews would have done well to pay attention to during his life. Thomas Andrews was born February 7th, 1873, and he died in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean on April 15th, 1912. You see, Thomas Andrews was the engineer and chief designer of the Titanic. And he was on the ship when it sank and his life was lost. As you may know, in the early morning of April 15th, 1912, the Titanic struck an iceberg and sank. It originally set sail a few days prior on April 10th with 2,229 people on board. And when all was said and done, only 713 individuals survived. Now, what's both fascinating and heartbreaking about this story is that the incident, the entire incident could have been avoided. If Andrews would have listened to those who were more concerned about safety than they were luxury. You see, it was already common practice, even in the 1800s, to install a double hull 
on your ship, not only on the bottom of the ship, but on the sides as well, to have two hulls, basically two walls to protect the ship. That way, if the outer hull was breached and water flowed in, it couldn't get past the inner hull. The reinforcement would protect the ship. But Andrews wasn't concerned about that. He put a double hull on the bottom, but thought the sides of the ship will be fine. It's just too expensive to add a double hull, and we would rather have more luxury than safety, although I don't know that he said it exactly like that. But there were further problems. The rivets at the bottom of the Titanic were hammered in by hand, and rather than using steel, which was common practice, when they ran out, they replaced the rivets with weaker iron that did not do well in salt water. See, part of the reason, again, for this emphasis on saving money was that Andrews, despite constant warnings and best practice, was so focused on luxury that he ignored all the counsel regarding safety. It seemed right to him. But what's more, even more devastating is the understanding that if Andrews would have followed the guidance, the Titanic, even striking that iceberg, would have been completely fine and made it to its port without Sinking. You see, there, this was already proven because some 50 years earlier, there was another ship named the Great Eastern, not nearly as big as the Titanic, but painstakingly crafted with safety in mind. And it struck an uncharted rock off Long Island and it tore an 83 foot long, nine foot wide gash in the side of the ship. But it had an inner hull. And so it held. And it steamed safely into New York Harbor without any person losing their life. When the Titanic hit the iceberg, it created only a 30-foot hole. Not nearly as damaging as what the Great Eastern experienced. But what caused the hole in the Titanic was that the rivets, the iron rivets, popped out of the bottom of the boat when it struck the iceberg. All this because Andrews, despite warnings and common practice, did what seemed right in his own eyes. Now, you didn't come here to hear me talk about the Titanic. I tell you this story to set the scene for the end of the book of Judges. Because if on a physical, earthly, and less significant scale, these proverbs ring true for shipbuilders, how much more do they ring true when it comes to matters of our soul? A fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. And as we just read, the book of Judges ends with this devastating statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. As we mentioned last week, as we come to the end of the book of Judges, we've been in this book for quite a few months now. Broken leaders and God's unbroken promise. We come to the end of the book and there is no happy ending. There is no grand deliverance for the nation of Israel as the time of the judges draws to a close. And yet, in spite of broken leaders, in spite of sin and rebellion, there is a God who keeps his promises. Like the beginning of the book, which included two introductions, the book concludes with two conclusions. We saw last week the first conclusion revealing the continued idolatry of Israel. Despite all that God had done, despite coming through when there was no other option, despite deliverance, even when the deliverers were insufficient, when Israel abandoned God, God refused to abandon them. And still, 
The people of God choose to do what seems right in their own eyes. This final conclusion, I'll warn you now, is a brutal conclusion. We'll read here in a few moments a painful section of the story, and it shows just how devastating sin is. And yet, in the midst of that devastation, you catch echoes of the faithfulness of God. I don't want us to miss this, that even when humanity is at its worst, even when we, the people of God, are at our worst, God is still near. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, so what I'm going to try to do is summarize a lot of these three chapters, and we're going to focus pretty heavily on their story, but I want to still draw out, hopefully, some implications for us living in the 21st century, some truths we can learn from Israel, we can learn about God that we can put into practice. And so I've tried to break the final conclusion down into three main categories that I want you to see. Here's the first. I want you to see the fullness of corruption. The fullness of of corruption. So Judges 19 begins and we're introduced to a man from the tribe of Levi. That's the priestly tribe in Israel. And he's traveling to Bethlehem to retrieve his wife who has been unfaithful to him. And the Bible tells us in verse three, Judges 19 verse three, then her husband got up and followed her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had his servant with him and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him to her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. And so we right there at the beginning, we learn a little bit about this Levi. This is a man. We, we, we don't know why, uh, why his wife has left him. We don't know what, what kind of unfaithfulness, whether it was just desertion, whether it was adultery. We don't know. But you have this man and you get a sense of his character and that he goes and pursues his wife and he pursues her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. Even his action towards her reveals his affection and his goodness because he takes a servant and he brings two donkeys. He's not even going to make her walk back. She gets to ride back home and he goes and pursues his wayward bride. The Levite ends up staying for five days at his father-in-law's house, though the father-in-law wants him to stay longer. After the fifth day, the Levite with his servant, his wife and his two donkeys decide it's time to head home. And so we read beginning, beginning in verse 11. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, so they're on their way home. Servant says to his master, please, why not let us stop at this Jebusite city and spend the night here? But his master replied to him, we will not stop at a foreign city where there are no Israelites. Let's move to Gibeah. Come on, he said, let's try to reach one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So they continued on their journey and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. So what I want you to pay attention to here is this is a man who is not only lovingly pursuing his wayward bride. This is a man who is trying to be faithful to God so much so that he won't even stay in a city that's not occupied by one of the tribes of Israel. Why? We'll go back to Joshua 23, beginning in verse 6, where, where it says, Be strong and, and continue to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you do not associate with the nations remaining among you. This is a man who cares so much about faithfulness that he will not associate with the nations who are not of the tribe of Israel because God has commanded him to do so. This Levite, 
being faithful to what Israel had forgotten, refused to associate with nations, even to the point that he would not stay in one of their cities. Rather, he would inconvenience himself and travel further and later on into the night to find an Israel city. So we got to pause here, draw out a lesson for us here. Here it is. Faithfulness is not always convenient. Faithfulness is not always convenient. Listen, I know that we would probably all nod our heads and agree with that, but I've got to remind you, if you are looking for a Christianity that fits your schedule, that fits your desires and your wants and your needs only, I don't know that we're going to be able to follow the same Christianity. Because the Christianity that Jesus offers is a Christianity that beckons you to come and die to take up your cross and to follow him, but there to find that you can truly live. Faithfulness is not always convenient. And some of us can testify to that right now in the world that we live in. Standing on the word of God, believing that what God has for us is better, will put us in direct confrontation with the world in which we live. But faithfulness was never meant to be convenient. And here with this Levite, you see a man who is willing to go out of his way to be faithful to what God has called him to be. I don't know, this resonates with me because if I'm honest with you, there are times where I'm tempted to be faithful when it's convenient. And when it's not, I just want to do what I want to do. Maybe y'all holier than me, so we'll press on. So the Levite presses on and he arrives at Gibeah. It's in Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. And as is customary, he goes and he sits in the city square. You see, the people of God were to be marked by their hospitality. So if there's someone sitting in the city square, what would have been customary would be for someone from the city to come out, say, hey, what are you doing here? What do you need? Come and stay with us. And as they sit there, no one comes. So you already start to get the indication that something is a little off with the tribe of Benjamin. It's late in the evening when a man comes back into the city. He's been working out in the fields. So he's probably not a very wealthy man. Probably not high to do in society in Benjamin, but he spots them and offers them a place to go. And he, like the Levite, was originally from Ephraim, and so he opens his home. And that night would be a devastating night for the Levite and his bride. And the story picks up in verse 22. And this is what I mentioned a moment ago. Just be warned, it's painful to read. And so we read Judges 19, beginning in verse 22, while they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. And they said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. And the owner of the house went out and said to them, please don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage here. Let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine now. Abuse them and do whatever you want to them. But don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and took her outside to them. They raped her and abused her all night until morning. At daybreak, they let her go. Early that morning, the woman made her way back. As it was getting light and she collapsed at the doorway of the man's house where her master was. And when her master got up in the morning, opened the doors of the house and went out to leave on his journey. There was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. 
See, the author records these details because he wants the readers to understand the full corruption of the people of God. What these men did was wicked, but even more what the owner of the house did was wicked in a book that intentionally highlights the worth, the value, the purpose, the necessity of women and the people of God. He is willing to throw his own daughter and another man's wife to these wicked men. It was not good. It was not right. It was continued wickedness. But I don't I don't want you to miss this. Does this story sound at all familiar to you? You see, the author tells this story in such a way that it intentionally mirrors the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The epitome of wickedness in Genesis 19. You remember that story, don't you? One commentator, Miles Van Pelt, he was helpful as he pointed out 10 similarities between the story. First, travelers arrive at a town in the evening. Second, a host urges the guests not to spend the night in the town square. Third, the host is a sojourner, not a native of the city. Fourth, all the men in the city surround the house. Fifth, the men of the city make the same demand of the host. Genesis 19.5, bring them out to us that we may know them. Judges 19.22, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. The host, number six, the host goes out to the men in the city and leaves the visitors in the house. Number seven, the host pleads with the men of the city not to do this wicked thing. Genesis 19.7, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Judges 19.23, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. The host, number eight, the host offers two women as a substitute for the men. Genesis 19.8, do to them as you please. Judges 19.24, do with them what seems good to you. Number nine, the men of the city do not want the women as a substitute. Number 10, all the inhabitants of the city, as we will see, are eventually destroyed and the city is burned with fire. The author wants you to think. Do you remember those wicked Sodomites back in Genesis 19 that God destroyed? At the end of Judges, his own people are just as corrupt. I'll be honest with you, church, as I was reading this, I found myself asking the question, how does it get this bad? How does it get this bad? How, how do the people of God go from Joshua 20, 20, 24, 24, we will worship the Lord our God and obey him alone to this, to full corruption? And as I was thinking about it, all that kept coming to my mind was proximity. I kept thinking proximity. Here's what I mean. Have you, uh, have you heard the story or the statement that familiarity breeds contempt? Have I heard that? Yep, thank you. One person, great. Well, there's a statement that says familiarity breeds contempt. What it means is the more you're around something, uh, you can start to feel contempt towards it, not to like it as much, not to value it as much. But in this case, it wasn't true for the nation of Israel. Because for Israel, they were familiar with the pagan nations. They were familiar with the false gods. And rather than that growing within them a righteous contempt, it turned into their participation. But here's the thing. God knew that this is what was going to happen, which is why at the very beginning he tells them, hey, I'm giving you this land, but you have to go drive out all of the inhabitants because if you don't, if you are near them, proximity, you will start worshiping like they worship. Because what God knew of Israel was that familiarity would not breed contempt, but rather proximity would lead to participation. Here's what I'm saying. If you are around it enough, you will likely start participating. And that might not go as well for you as you think, depending on what you 
are around. Let me try to give you a lighter example. Way back in the day, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Way back in the day, inline skating was the thing. You know, that was, the, I don't even know if they do that anymore, but inline skating was the thing. I was obsessed with it. I'd watch movies about it, right? Brink came out on the Disney show. Whew, that was fire. Brink. I'd watch movies about it. I'd read magazines about it. I'd try to get my parents to take me to the skate shop. They never would. I started hanging around with people who were good at inline skating. Thank you for not taking me to the skate shop, by the way. I was around it all the time. And what it did is it gave me this unhealthy level of confidence. Here's what I mean. One day, my friends who were actually decent at it were going to a skate park. I thought, here's my chance. Now, mind you, I'd never been to a skate park before, and I'd never done any extreme skating. The best that I had done is, done is gone real fast down a hill and have to pull into the grass because it's softer to fall in the grass because I couldn't stop. But in my mind, I could do anything that they could do because I'd seen it. I was around it, and it didn't appear to go bad for them. So we get to the skate park. I'd been there all of five minutes when I decide I'm going to try that half pipe right there. Let me make a long story short and say this. When I decided at five minutes in, at six minutes in, we were on our way home with my arm broken in three places. You see, I was around it so much that I thought I could do it. And I didn't think about the consequences. How much greater can the consequences be when it comes to matters of our own soul? Here's what I'm trying to tell you, and I don't have enough time to press into it like I want to, so I'm going to drop it here for you and move on. Some of us right now are trying to get as close to the things of this world as we can without actively participating in them. But if the people of God in the book of Judges teach us anything, it's that continuous proximity will eventually lead to participation. So this begs the question, what are you trying to get close to right now? What are you trying to get close to? Because what you are around will, will begin to shape how you live, either for the better or for the worse. Some of you know it to be true in your spiritual life. Some of you, let's be honest, some of you have walked into this place with no desire to worship Jesus that Sunday morning. Can we be honest? Like you're here because you're supposed to be here. You don't want to be here. They tell you to stand. I want to sit, but I'm going to stand because everybody else stands. Let's worship the Lord. Well, I don't really want to worship the Lord, but something can happen even on a Sunday morning as you're around it and people start singing your proximity to the praise of our great God can somehow change something in your heart to where before you know it by the second song, you're ready to praise the Lord because proximity can lead to participation. You know it to be true even in the grand scheme of your spiritual life because some of us have these moments where we look back on our life and we say, man, there was a moment when God did that thing and it changed everything. But some of us, if we're honest, have moments where we look back and we say, I don't really know how I got here, but I'm better now than I was then. There wasn't this defining moment where God shook the split the sky and shook the rock. It's just that we were near his word. We were near his people. And we look back and say, huh, somehow I look more like Jesus because proximity will lead to participation and participation in spiritual things will lead to sanctification. And we look back and say, look at God. But the same is true on the other side. The closer we draw to the things of this world, though we might not want to participate, we get as close to it as we can, though. Yeah. Yeah. But proximity will always lead to participation. Yeah. And so, again, this idea that we are called to be in this world, but not of this world, being set apart for the Lord. And again, 
It's not always convenient to be faithful. It's not easy, but it is for our good and a testimony that we believe God is better than anything this world has to offer. Now, before we move on, there's one more lesson for us here as well. We just talked about how faithfulness is not always convenient. And this can be a hard one. We also have to understand that faithfulness does not mean everything will go well. Like I'll be, I struggle with the story of the Levi. And I know it hits at a nerve of some things that I believe about God. I'm being transparent with you, all right? It strikes at a nerve of some things that I can believe about God. This Levi was faithful. He was faithful to pursue his wayward wife. He was faithful to keep the command of Joshua 24, what all the people of Israel had forgotten. He may have been the only one. And you would think that that faithfulness would bring good things. You would think that God would say, I see you, Levi. Let me make your life a little bit easier. But we just got to be honest about the fact, church, that faithfulness does not mean your life will go well. And maybe maybe I'm preaching this point to my own self and that's fine. I'll preach it to me because I need to hear it even as I was writing it. I was so angry with the Lord this week. Can we just be honest for a minute? I was frustrated with him. My wife can attest to it. I said things to her about the things that I believe about God that I was embarrassed of and had to repent to her and to the Lord. Because I was so angry at the fact where I'm like, God, I am trying to be faithful. I am trying to be obedient. I am in your word. I am studying. I am trying to shepherd and lead. I am trying to be righteous. And it seems like nothing will go my way. And I had to remind myself of the truth that this text is positioned to teach us that God never promised that it would be easy when we are faithful. But he always promised that he would be there and that he would be present and good. And when the circumstances aren't, God is. So chapter 19 ends in a very dramatic way. After the Levite picks up his murdered bride with hands on the threshold. Because she didn't survive. He travels the rest of the way home. He still takes his bride home. And when he gets home, he cuts her body into 12 pieces. And sends them to the 12 tribes throughout Israel. And this leads to the final two chapters. And here's what I want you to see. Not only the fullness of corruption, but the festering of sin. Chapter 20 begins and we read this. All of the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out and the community assembled as one body before the Lord at Mizpah. So those locations are given to show you that people came from the far north, the far south, the far east. All of Israel came and gathered at Mizpah and the leaders of all the people, it says, and of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 armed soldiers. The Benjaminites heard that the Israelites had gone to Mizpah and the Israelites asked, tell us, How did this evil act happen? So let me summarize. Israel gathers and they ask the Levite, what is going on? It's a strange thing to receive a body part in the mail. And so they gather and they say, what happened? And the Levite explains everything that took place in chapter 19. He explains that one of of our tribes, Benjamin, 
did this. And all the people are rightly outraged. And the law is clear. The Old Testament law is clear here. Deuteronomy 21, 9. You must purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood, for you will be doing what is right in the Lord's sight. There was one option and one option alone for the tribes of Israel. Remove that tribe. There should have been 11 tribes of Israel at that moment. The tribe of Benjamin is to be removed from the tribes of Israel. They are now cursed. And so the 400,000 warriors of Israel will now go to war with the roughly 27,000 warriors from Benjamin. Now, before they leave Mizpah, the men of Israel make a vow. We see it in Judges 21, verse 1. So backtrack, Judges 20 tells the story. Judges 21 retells the story in greater detail. That's common in a lot of Old Testament writing. You see it in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It's a retelling of the story. It's the same thing that happens here. Genesis 20 tells the story. Or I'm sorry, Judges 20 tells the story. Judges 21 retells it with greater detail. But we, we read of this vow in 21 verse 1. It says, The men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah that none of us will give his daughter to a Benjamite in marriage. Seems trivial. If you're about to go kill them all, why are you worried about giving your daughters to them? But they make that vow. So they travel then to Bethel and they ask the Lord, who should lead us in this battle? And similar to the beginning of Judges, do you remember which tribe was chosen to lead the the battle in Judges 1? That's okay. I don't expect you to. It was Judah. And so once again, Judah is tasked with driving out the Canaanites. Oh, wait. They're tasked with driving out their own people. Again, leading us to see that the author is not only now comparing them with Sodom, he's now comparing them to Canaan. So they all go out that first day led by Judah to Gibeah and they fight. 400,000 soldiers fight against 27,000 and the tribe of Benjamin wins. Kills 22,000, the men of Israel. And so Israel retreats and they go back to Bethel and they again ask the Lord if they should fight the next day. And God says, yes, go fight again. And this time they go and they fight and they lose 18,000 men in another defeat. And so broken, Israel returns to Bethel. This time they fast and they pray and they sacrifice to the Lord and they ask if they should go and fight the Benjaminites again. And the Lord says in Judges 20, verse 28, fight Because I will hand them over to you tomorrow. This time they come up with a different plan. And so the plan is rather than making a full frontal assault against Gibeah, they're going to run up to attack them, but then they're going to immediately retreat and try to draw them out. And they'll have men stationed on the sides ready to ambush. And so when they draw Gibeah out, those men will go into the city and they have one job. Kill, destroy and burn everything. And once the city starts burning, the smoke will be an indication to Israel to stop running and to turn and fight. But because now Gibeah will have nowhere to retreat to. And that's the plan. And it works. But I want to be clear, it doesn't work because they came up with a great plan. It works because the Lord said, I will hand them over to you tomorrow. They chased the remaining Benjaminites who were fleeing. And when all was said and done. Out of the entire tribe of Benjamin, only 600 men from the tribe remained. But this presents a problem because all of them had to be destroyed according to the law. That might seem harsh to you, but all of them are indicted because of what happened to this woman and all of them are guilty and all of them should have been destroyed. 
there was to be no trace of the tribe that sinned so wickedly. But as you could guess, the nation doesn't do that. And look at Judges 21, verses 6 and 7. It says, But the Israelites had compassion on their brothers, the Benjaminites. And they said, Today a tribe has been cut off from Israel. What should we do about wives for the survivors? We've sworn to the Lord not to give them any of our own daughters as wives. See, they didn't, they didn't want to lose a tribe. They cared more about their tribe than they did holiness. That's a sermon that would preach. But they knew in order, you see how good I did, the spirit kept me from going there. They didn't want to lose the tribe, but they knew in order for the tribe to survive, those 600 men would need wives. But the problem was when they called the people together, they made a vow that no one would give them wives and there are no women left in Benjamin. So they come up with a plan and they say, let's do this. When we called the people together together to fight, was there anybody that didn't come? Any towns that didn't show up? And as it turned out, there was one town, Jabesh Gilead, who did not come when they gathered at Mizpah to hear from the Levite what had happened to his wife. And so they decide, let's do this. Let's go there to their town, kill all their men, all their wives, all the children, and take anyone who is still a virgin. And so when they did that, they found 400 virgins in the town. So they took the virgins, called for a peace with Benjamin, and gave them 400 women. That's wickedness. That wasn't sanctioned by the Lord. Like sometimes people read this, but look how wicked God is. God's not the wicked one. God's the one who's putting up with the wicked people. They kill an entire town and take 400 virgins and they give them to the Benjaminites. But there was a problem. There were 200 left who did not have wives and they couldn't give their own daughters as wives. They made a vow. So another plan. Here's what they decided. Coming up in Shiloh, there's going to be a festival for the Lord. So what we'll do is we'll send those men from Benjamin and when the women come out and dance in praise to the Lord, we'll give them permission to go steal the women, to take 200 women for themselves. But it gets worse because the tribe said, and then when those tribes who we steal, the, who Benjamin steals the women from, when they come and ask us to help, what we'll say to them is, hey, this is good news. You didn't actually give your daughters to them. So you didn't break your vow. So let's just let Benjamin have them. Are you starting to see how not dealing with sin leads to more sin? How not doing what God has called you to do, it, it, won't, it won't go away. Like you, you can't sweep your sin under the rug. How when we allow even a little sin to remain, it can cause damage beyond what we can think or imagine. But here's the thing. I'll show it to you. I, I briefly mentioned it earlier. But the conflict was initially between Benjamin and Judah. Do you remember? Judah was to go first. That was significant. The Lord was telling us something. It was symbolic. And if Judah would have eliminated Benjamin, they would have prevented the pain that was to come. Because you see, the tribe of Benjamin, which should have been eradicated, would later become one of the greatest hindrances for Israel when a monarchy was established. Because do you remember when Israel did want a king? There's going to come a point right after Judges where they go and, and whine to Samuel, the prophet. 
And they say this to him in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 and 5. It says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, listen, appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations. Again, 1 Samuel 8, 20. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us and fight our battles. So the people of God still in rebellion, not wanting God as their king, want to look like the other nations. They want to look like everyone else. They ask for a king. And so where does Samuel go and get Saul from the tribe of Benjamin? You want a king that looks like the world? Let's take it from this tribe, which has shown itself to look like a world. And then... Saul from the tribe of Benjamin is going to be in constant conflict with King David from the tribe of Judah. The same conflict in Judges 20 would persist into a conflict between two kings in the nation of Israel. All because sin was allowed to fester. So here's the lesson. I think it's clear. Deal with your sin. Listen to me. Every Sunday. We come in this place and we take communion. We do that intentionally every Sunday because we think it matters. We believe that there's grace in taking communion. But one of the stipulations of communion is deal with your sin before you come. Here's the thing. God's not asking you to jump through hoops. He's not asking you to practice aesthetic practices. He's not asking you to condemn yourself or shame yourself. He is simply saying confess your sins. And I am faithful and just to forgive you of your trespasses and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And please hear me. One of the great lies that Satan attempts to lead us astray with is this idea that you have to carry your sin for a while. Come on, y'all know it's true. Some of you have sinned and felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit 30 seconds after you sinned. But you tell yourself, I can't. I I just did it. I I can't ask God for forgiveness right now. I got to shame myself a little bit. I got to condemn myself a little bit, right? That's not from the spirit. The spirit's the one who convicted, who says, bring it to the father. He is good. He is faithful. He will forgive. And Satan says, no, 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 hold on to it. Because he knows that if it's allowed to fester, it will destroy more and more and more. Brothers and sisters, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And what you could not do, Christ did. You don't have to carry your sin as if his death wasn't sufficient, as if his grace isn't greater. Don't buy into that lie. Deal with your sin. Nevertheless, Israel allows sin to fester. And it leads to even more rebellion. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now, Judges ends there. That's it. End of the story. Thank you for coming. Goodbye. But again, I'd be half a preacher if I left it there. Because ultimately, this story isn't just about Israel's rebellion. It's a story of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. You know, one of the things that, one of the things that hurt me the most in this story as I read it, because there are parallels to this day, is that the Levite traveled to the people of God, which should have been the safest place for him. And it was the people of God 
who did the greatest damage. And you can flip open Twitter and see that the people of God are still capable of doing damage. But here's the thing. We have to make sure we respond the right way because the tendency right now is, I'm done with the church. I'm done with the people of God. I'm done with their hypocrisy. I'm done with their sin. I'm done with their wickedness. But church, that's all of us. And the amazing thing about judges is that in the midst of this wickedness, God doesn't give up on his people. I said it in the introduction. Even in this devastating story, you catch echoes of the faithfulness of God. Because remember, this isn't just a story of Israel's failure. This is a story of God's relentless pursuit of a people who abandoned him. So where do we see God? We see God in the Levite a faithful man who was willing to pursue his wayward bride with kindness and compassion. Israel is like that bride who, despite having a kind and good husband, chooses other lovers, lovers that lead to ruin, destruction, and chaos, and still God pursues them. That's the story of the judges. You have abandoned me and rebelled, but you cried out and I'm here to deliver. You sin, you rebel. You cry out, I'm here to deliver. Time, 12 times, 12 judges, and God is faithful. It's a story of God's relentless pursuit of his people because he loves them. And just in case you're confused, that's really good news for you and me because we're not the Levite in the story. We're not Judah in the story. We're Benjamin. The wages of our sin is death, but there is a faithful God. We see it in the pursuit of justice. We see God, not only in Levite, but we see God in the pursuit of justice. Don't miss this. Though Israel eventually got it wrong at the end, they actually did reflect the justice of God. The justice that demanded retribution from an entire entire tribe for the injustice committed against one woman. I got to give Judah a little credit. 400,000 warriors show up to avenge the death of one woman. That's the justice of God. God will fight for the one. We just sang about it. I'm reminded of Jesus, the good shepherd who will leave the 99 to pursue the one. He'll fight. Justice will come. But ultimately, the greatest echo is actually a declaration of what is to come. Because this final conclusion is pointing us to Jesus. Watch this. There would come another like the Levite who would travel to Bethlehem to lead his wayward bride home. There is another from the tribe of Judah, and he too would confront the sin committed by a sinful people, but rather than cursing a sinful people, he would take the curse on himself. He would show compassion on a rebellious people, not by committing more sin, but by taking the sin Upon himself. And as Jesus hung on that cross and died, he would pay the penalty for every sin. He would die in the place of a sinful people, but he would not stay dead. Because three days later, he would rise from the grave with power and victory and freedom from sin in his hand. And he offers salvation freely. He is a good God, he is a gracious Savior, and he is the glorious 
king. And this morning, as we end judges, let me say this. There are two options for you this morning and only two. Continue to do what is right in your own eyes and find that it leads to death. Or trust the one who has conquered sin and conquered death. Submit to him as king and find life and life abundant. Church, we are a broken people. We are just like Israel. But there is a faithful God who has kept his promise to deliver. And the God who was is the same God who still is.